Hey, Dad, what river is this? Ah, the Mississippi. The mighty Mississippi. The old miss. The old man. If you're like me, anytime you hear the word Mississippi, that line from vacation pops into your head, which I really hope there's no one else around there. Actually, no, that's not true. Laugh more. Yeah, I do wish there was more people around there like me. Anyway, folks, today we are going to embark on a journey of discovery through the curious patchwork of Mississippi's folklore. Filled with rich cultural tradition, Mississippi has created a stunning blend of tales that reflect its historical importance in the U.S. From majestic reminders of the Civil War to powerful Native American legends. This folklore offers us an insight into the past while also compelling us with unforgettable stories from days gone by. Today we're going to explore some stories from the Windsor Ruins, the McRaven House, King's Tavern, and the Witch Dance. A collection of narratives and lore that truly captures the essence of Mississippi's history and soul. Do you believe in ghosts? Join me on the journey through America's dark and haunted past as we explore the ghost stories and folklore that have been passed down for generations. What scares you? Let's find out. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. About 10 miles southwest of Port Gibson, near the Mississippi River, Windsor ruins sit like a lonely Stonehenge. In 1826, Smith Coffee Daniel II, a wealthy planter with extensive properties in the Mississippi Delta, Arkansas, and Louisiana, built the Windsor Plantation Mansion. He was born in 1826, the son of an Indian fighter who became a farmer and wealthy landowner. In 1849, he married Catherine Freeland, and the couple would have seven children, but only three would make it to adulthood. It's sad. In 1859, the couple constructed a grand Greek Revival-style mansion on their expansive 2,600-acre plantation overlooking the Mississippi River. New England craftsmen and slave labor were used to build the four-story house, incorporating Italianate and Gothic architectural styles. When finished, it compromised of 25 rooms, each featuring its own marble mantelpiece over a fireplace, Water was provided to all the bathrooms around the home by a tank in the attic which collected and stored rainwater. No expense was spared during this project. The Daniel home featured an impressive upper floor with a master bedroom, bath, two parlors, a study, and a library. All on the same level contained a pantry and a dining room equipped with a dumbwaiter for transporting meals to the basement. This lower area had a schoolroom, dairy, supply rooms, kitchen, and a doctor's office. The grandeur continued to the third floor with an additional bath and nine bedrooms. Nah, just nine. The crowning glory of the house, the crowning glory has nine bedrooms on one floor, was situated on its highest level. There sat an observatory, supported by smaller Corinthian columns from where Smith Daniel could spot his entire Mississippi plantation, as well as parts of his Louisiana estate in the distance. Completing this noble structure were eight chimneys that punctuated its hipped roof. Wow. And that was just the inside. The mansion's exterior featured 29 fluted columns with attached iron balustrades, which enclosed the galleries on the upper levels. The bricks for the 45-foot columns were formed and fired by slaves at a kiln on Windsor grounds. A wrought iron staircase was manufactured in St. Louis, Missouri, shipped down the Mississippi River to Bruinsburg, and hauled 14 miles overland to Windsor by expert masons. The skilled carpenters from New England completed the furnished woodworkings, moldings, and other elegant details inside the house. 
decorated with the finest furnishings from as far away as New York and Europe. Mark Twain, who visited the Windsor Mansion during his riverboat piloting days, compared it to a college due to its size. A few years later, he wrote of its elegance in the book Life on the Mississippi. Now, everybody get ready to throw up when I tell you how much it cost. The building and furnishings for the home cost about $175,000, making it one of the largest in Mississippi when completed in 1861. Smith Coffee Daniel II, who had waited patiently for two years and overseen many details of his new home, passed away just a few weeks after the building was complete. Jesus Christ, imagine. The Civil War erupted that same year, and Windsor would find itself in the middle of it, as did many other plantations in the South. While Smith Daniel's family would remain at Windsor after his death, they would not immediately see the Civil War soldiers on their lawns. However, this would all change during Grant's Vicksburg campaign. Confederate soldiers often used the rooftop observatory to watch Union movements on the Mississippi River. They used signaling equipment to warn their comrades about Yankee advancement when Union ships moved along the river and troops forged their way through the region. Yet, unbeknownst to the rebels, Union troops had been watching them all along in anticipation of attacking Vicksburg. Years later, Smith Coffey Daniel IV told a narrative from his great-grandmother Catherine that concerned an undisturbed night. During the Civil War, Catherine showed hospitality to her family and acquaintances. She organized a dinner requiring every invited participant to bring something edible. Confederate officers were also welcomed. Little did she know, though, that by sending out invitations, she also unwittingly tipped off the Union. A servant opened the door to men and welcomed them while Catherine's guests enjoyed the party. The men, however, were not neighbors, but Union soldiers who had interpreted the signal and dressed in civilian clothing. They had arrived to capture the rebels. According to one of the officers, he wrote his family later. In the letter it said, So we entered, and there in the house's parlor was quite a party, singing and laughing and having a fine time generally. Among them were three Confederates dressed in their gray uniforms. I walked in and went up to one of them that seemed to be in command, touched him on the shoulder and inquired, Are you a Confederate officer? He promptly replied, Yes, I am. At this, the singing stopped and the ladies present came around and insisted that we Yankees were not gentlemen and that we would not spoil their evening by arresting and taking prisoners of the three Confederate soldiers. The ladies grew boisterous, attacking us with their fists and fingernails and refused to allow the arrest. The lieutenant and his detail came in from the rear. We then took the three rebels prisoner. We marched them down to the river edge from Windsor to where our lulls have been left, loaded them and went back up the river to the Grand Gulf where the gunboat was tied up. It was late night when we arrived there. When we took them to Vicksburg, that's where they were imprisoned. Following this, Union troops were put on hand at the Windsor Plantation as permanent sentinels, and the observatory was once more a place to use, this time by federal forces. On April 29, 1863, General Ulysses S. Grant of the Union attempted to cross the Mississippi River from Louisiana at the Grand Gulf around 10 miles northeast of the Windsor Mansion. Unfortunately, he was not successful and altered his strategy instead. Consequently, he directed his troops downriver to Bruinsburg Landing the next day. After approximately 17,000 soldiers had disembarked there, they commenced their inland march with thousands of men passing by the Windsor Mansion. The Battle of Port Gibson on May 1st, many wounded soldiers were brought back to Windsor and a temporary hospital was set up in the basement. By some unidentified means, a Union soldier was lethally shot in the front doorway of Catherine's home. 
This news reached General Grant, who sent troops to burn the house. However, Catherine pleaded with them to spare it, explaining how she attended to many of their brethren after Port Gibson and that her family would be left without a place to stay. Though her home was preserved, the barn was destroyed as an example to teach those around her that killing Union soldiers came with severe consequences. The Windsor Mansion was one of the few that survived the war, although it could no longer celebrate its lavish past. The South's economy had taken a toll on the plantation. Over time, much of the family's holdings were sold off. Tragedy struck again 25 years after the war when a blaze engulfed the four-story home and all of its contents in thick smoke. Catherine Daniel was at a loss for words as she watched helplessly from beneath an oak tree far away from the burning house. That day, the family had been making ready to welcome guests to a soiree when they briefly stepped out, only to return to find their manor alight. It appeared that a laborer employed to mend the observatory had carelessly thrown a cigarette into a stack of sawdust, which set off the inferno. Those present attempted to valiantly contain it, but all was lost except some china. From the pages of the Biloxi Daily Herald, February 21st, 1890. The palatial dwelling on Windsor Plantation near Bethel Church in the southwestern part of the county burned to the ground last Monday. The fire was discovered about noon, but it could not be checked, and in a few hours, this splendid country site was in ruins. Most of the contents were also destroyed. These included not only a great deal of elegant furniture, but many costly heirlooms and many other household properties of value, such as jewelry, silver plates, a large library, etc. The residence, probably the most magnificent in the state, was erected by Mr. Smith Daniel shortly before the war. It was a brick structure compromising 25 rooms and was completed in 1859. The building cost was $140,000 and the furniture an additional $35,000 breaking the total cost to $175,000. We regret to learn that neither upon it nor its contents were there any insurance. For the rest of her life, Catherine Daniel lived on a nearby plantation called Retreat. For decades, visitors have flocked to Port Gibson, Mississippi to witness the majestic columns that are all that are left of the Windsor, one of the grandest houses in the pre-war South. Its exact appearance before its 1890 destruction by fire eluded us until an illustration was uncovered in the diary of Lieutenant Henry Otis Dwight, a Union soldier who fought with the 20th Ohio Infantry during the Civil War. The journal and drawing were found at the Ohio State Archives in Columbus, Ohio. Dwight's drawing is the first to be found that was done by someone who actually visited the house. While other artists have sketched the house, they were based on oral descriptions. In what was thought to be Dwight's handwriting, the sketch says, May 1st, 1963, residence near Bruinsburg, Mississippi. Today's only remnants are 23 haunting columns, portions of the balustrade, some china, and a set of wrought iron stairs. The chapel at Alcorn State University now uses part of the balustrade. Over the years, thousands of acres of cotton fields tended by slaves and sharecroppers have been replaced by hundreds of trees, heavy brush, and soil erosion. The numerous outbuildings have long disappeared. When Smith Coffee Daniels' descendants donated the property to the state of Mississippi in 1974, the property remained in the family. Hollywood also made a pilgrimage to these ruins in two films, Rain Tree County in 1957 and Ghosts of Mississippi in 1996. It is no wonder that these silent standing obelisks have spurred so many legends and tales. Visitors to the ruins of this once lavish estate often comment of the sheer size of the structure admiring its elaborate columns and picturing what life of the family must have been like before chaos ensued. 
The Union soldier who was killed in the mansion's doorway during the Civil War is said to remain on the property. People say they have seen his faded figure rising up the old wrought iron staircase, which has since been removed. People also said they heard laughter and music, which would have been from the lavish soiree. Another spectral being, seemingly belonging to Smith Coffey Daniel II, has been observed on the grounds wearing clothes from the era that he resided in. Although, as people come closer to him, he vanishes into the air. Paranormal investigators who have visited this historic property agree with the visitors. It has been reported that ghost hunters have seen the same spirits and reported the sounds of revelry coming from the plantation party on EVPs. Many people have reported disembodied voices and also being touched by hands that belong to people who can't be seen. Hey folks, with August quickly coming to an end, September is right around the corner, and you know what that means. Spooky season is upon us. I'm trying to get as many of these state-by-state -state episodes out before Halloween, just for anyone who's interested in maybe learning about a place that they didn't know about, that maybe they live near and they can go check out around spooky season. I know a lot of people like to do that. I know I like to do that. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to say thanks. Thanks to everybody for reaching out. Thanks for the reviews. The reviews have been coming in on Apple like crazy. Thank you guys so much. It means really like, really makes my whole day. So again, I appreciate everything. Thank you so much. Um, you know, all the other things that I normally say, if you want to check out my show Zoning Out, the link's in the show description. I just shared that uh, season two episode, I think, was it last Thursday? Yeah, Thursday. Because this episode was supposed to come out Thursday, but it didn't because I really wanted to talk about the witch's dance. Anyway, um, that's coming. You'll see. You'll see what I mean. Um, thanks, everybody, for the kind words, the voicemails. The voicemails has been great. The phone number's in the show description. If you want to reach out, tell me a scary story or uh, an experience that you had, or you just want to say hello. You know, I've been playing those during the credits at the end. Um, the credits. It's just the, the same song I put. I say credits like there's credits. The, the only credit is my name and the name of the show. Stupid. Anyway, I have to humble myself every now and again. But thank you all so, so much for reaching out to me and for making this show as fun for me as it is for you. I hope at least it's fun for you guys. And I think, yeah, that's it. Thursday coming up will be a new Last Meal episode, which I'm going to do the first, first Thursday of the month, or the second, second Thursday of the month is going to be a fiction. First, last Thursday is going to be uh, Last Meal. So we got a good fiction tale coming up. You guys are going to be introduced to a, a character I cannot wait to talk about who may show up in some other places, maybe, my stories. A lot of my stories, if you've been listening to my stories, um, they kind of all kind of cross with each other here and there, and at least most do. And this one's one that's definitely going to start crossing into things. And you're going to get some closure on another story coming very soon. Well, hint, hint. It's Zach Bain. All right, folks, let's continue with Mississippi. Thank you all so much again. Love you. Later. From the back of Vicksburg, Mississippi, the McRaven Mansion offers a glimpse into the unknown, a time capsule of U.S. history riddled with strife. As the most haunted location in a city drenched in spiritual energy, this 18th century abode plays out multiple recollections from other realms each night. Inside three distinct eras unfold tales of lost love, treachery, deceit, and murderous acts. In the yard stands others who had perished in the Civil War that split America. 
The premises have seen modern visitors suffer physical harm, but it continues to welcome adventurous tourists ready to embrace its eerie ambiance. Constructed in 1797, the Vicksburg Mansion, commonly known as McRaven, is one of the oldest in the city. It was first established in 1811 on the banks of the Mississippi River and quickly became an important trading port due to its location near Natchez Trace. This historic trail dates back centuries prior to European settlement, running around 440 miles from modern-day Natchez, Mississippi to Nashville, Tennessee. Unfortunately, this track was notorious for criminal activity. Andrew Glass was among the many robbers who utilized it. Legends tell that he constructed McRaven as his hideaway. The kitchen walls were still coated in a striking combination of blueberry and buttermilk paint layered atop brickwork, his own personal touch. Tour guides claim Andrew's death came at the hand of his wife, Mary, who assassinated him after finding him passed out. His chamber remains known as one of the most haunted sites within the home, as female guides often complain feeling uneasy when inside its walls. As folklorists often do, the truth and fiction blend over time in the case of Andrew Glass. He was reportedly quite wealthy and had paid luxury tax in Fort Nagels, though he was certainly no thief. The confusion that arose around him can be traced back to 1835 when John Murrell decided to incite a slave rebellion throughout southern cities. This plot has famously become known as Murrell's Excitement and ultimately failed. However, it resulted in a mob expelling gamblers from Vicksburg. Five of them were shot and lynched in the process. Though Sheriff Stephen Howard was involved, some speculate that Andrew Glass sold his property to him, which may have given rise to some of these confused stories. Stephen Howard built the Empire-style addition to the home in 1836, while Glass's 1797 structure remained in its original form. Tragically, Mary Elizabeth, his young wife, passed away from childbirth complications in the home and Howard was left devastated, eventually moving away. Nevertheless, it appears Mary's spirit stayed behind, her room is full of her original belongings and has been the setting for numerous spiritual events. Many visitors have cited her, and one tour guide even saw an indentation on the mattress that disappeared after he finished speaking about her. John Bob received the home in 1844, when his brother had bought it from Howard a few years prior. He enjoyed it until the Civil War broke out. Vicksburg became a major hotspot during Admiral David Fargott's Mississippi River campaign. To maintain safety, Citizens often hid away in caves. Bob then turned his home into a hospital and burial grounds for 25 soldiers. Evidence of bullets with teeth marks remain on the site, believed to be from those undergoing surgeries during that time. Whew. Those visiting report sightings of soldiers wandering around through the woods as well. During the Union occupation, Bob caught African-American Union soldiers trespassing on his property and threw a brick at one of them leaving them unconscious and having him to go apologize to General Henry W. Sulcum in court. On his way back, however, he ran into an armed squad, who later took him back to his property and executed him, making him the first instance of an inhabitant being killed by occupying forces at Vicksburg. When William Murray acquired the home from Bob's widow in 1882, it wasn't long before he passed away in it in 1911, with his wife close behind. His two daughters, Ella and Annie, occupied the abode until 1960, when Ella died. The two shared a strange tendency to entirely reject any form of contemporary technology, such as water or electric utilities. Some have commented that they'd even burn the antique furniture for heat in the winter. To this day, tales abound of sightings of the two sisters and their father around the house, 
leading some to question if something malevolent lurks within its walls. In 1985, Leyland French of the French Mustard family, I'm more of a Duke's guy myself, acquired the mansion. Reportedly, he spotted a ghost resembling William Murray, whose pictures still adorn the house. Subsequently, he became a target for supernatural assaults, which included having his face hammered onto the floor, crushing his spectacles and necessitating stitches to heal. Mr. French, he never went back. Even now, he has yet to respond to any queries about the property. The Reed family already held ownership when they decided to offer guided tours, but no one ever agrees to stay over. King's Tavern in Natchez is the oldest building in the oldest city on the Mississippi River. Established during the 1760s, the timber used to build on it was sourced from discarded flatboats that had been previously used to transport goods downriver to New Orleans and Natchez before steamboat technology was prevalent. After their delivery duties were complete, these merchants could not return back upstream against the strong current of the river, but instead sold their flatboats and made their journeys home, or at least as far as Nashville, via land along the old Natchez Trace, a route initially formed from trails once traversed by the indigenous people from the southeastern United States. There's no doubt the merchants and boatmen made pit stops at King's Tavern in Natchez before setting off. Afterward, it would become the hangout of notorious trace robbers who utilized the money they stole from them. Of these culprits, the Hart brothers were by far the most intimidating. The elder brother, Micaiah Big Harp, was particularly abhorrent as he even murdered his own daughter for making too much noise. They inflicted extensive damage through Mississippi, Tennessee, and Kentucky with barbarous rampages that lacked economic incentive. A posse hunted and killed Big Harp near Henderson, Kentucky in 1799. His brother's head, Willie Little Harp, was mounted and displayed at the crossroads known as Harp's Head Road. His brother had joined the Sam Mason gang in the meantime. Another notorious trace outlaw, Mason, was known for leaving messages after his crimes, often in the blood of his murdered victims, saying, done by Mason of the Woods. In 1803, Mississippi Territorial Governor William C.C. Claiborne put out a $2,000 reward for Mason. Little Harp and James May, another member of the Sam Mason gang, decided to collect it. So they killed Mason, cut off his head, and presented it in Greenville. The head was positively identified as Mason's, but a man in the crowd recognized Little Harp. Both Little Harp and May were arrested on the spot. They were tried, convicted, and sentenced to death by hanging. Their heads were mounted and displayed on poles on opposite ends of trace to deter outlaws. During their crime spree, Sam Mason and Little Harp hit Yazoo and Walnut Hill, which is now Vicksburg. So it's possible that they visited King's Tavern in Natchez to spend their ill-gotten gains. Some believe their ghosts still haunt King's Tavern. A menacing red-headed man wearing a top hat has been spotted from time to time. Could this be the ghost of Sam Mason or Little Harp? Madeline, who is by far the most famous ghost of King's Tavern, is said to have been met with a tragic end. Reportedly employed by Mr. King, the original owner, she entered into an amorous relationship with him. Mrs. King, however, was consumed by jealousy and purportedly had killed Madeline and her body concealed in the walls alongside the murder weapon, a bloodied knife. Despite the mystery, three skeletons, male and female, were discovered in the wall behind the fireplace during the 1930s along with a Spanish jeweled dagger. The residents of Natchez agree that the woman was none other than Madeline herself. There have been reports of a young woman dressed in old-fashioned clothing, a face suddenly appearing in the window or mirror, and warm spots on the bed upstairs. 
Madeline is believed to be responsible for much of the mischief happening in the tavern. There's a saying over at King's Tavern, come for the prime rib and stay to see Madeline. In the Natchez Trace Parkway, just south of Tupelo, Mississippi, there is a sign that reads, Witch Dance. The very name conjures up images of swirling black capes, eerie moonlight, and bubbling potion over a roaring fire. So was it? Local legends say yes. While the site currently serves as a campground, tales of danger have persisted for centuries, making it one of the most haunted spots in Mississippi. The Hopewell culture, initially inhabiting the area, were compromised of groups of related bands that flourished from around 200 BC to 500 AD. Later, many of their descendants became part of the Chickasaw and Choctaw tribes. I'm sorry if I butchered that pronunciation. I probably pronounced both of those wrong. There's probably, actually, there's no probably. It's actually, uh, I confirmed that I pronounced them wrong. Guaranteed. Anywho. The age-old mysteries and superstitions surrounding the trace date back to as far as these first inhabitants. Native American lore reveals that when oppressive times in Mexico arose, the Hopewell tribe fled to the area with bones of their ancestors. In the trace, these bones contributed to constructing large mounds. The first dwellers of the area around Witch Dance were the Paleo-Indian group, credited with having built the Bynum Mounds between Witch Dance and Houston, Mississippi. Legend holds that their leader, who held a sacred bag as well as a medicine stick, was trailed by a white dog. Every night, they would take camp at one site, only to move when the medicine stick changed positions. The white canine guided them to food during their travels. Upon reaching their new home, the stick pointed skyward. Chata and Chiksa, two of the members of the group, were brothers. As time passed, it became apparent that the land could not support the entire group. Thus, Chiksa took half of them to the north, and they became the Chicksaw tribe. Meanwhile, Chata stayed where the mound was, and those that remained, and soon after, were known as the Choctaw people. Since the area was already steeped in legends and superstitions, witches began gathering for nighttime ceremonies at the place known as Witch Dance to celebrate their abilities. They would feast and dance all night long, celebrating and improving their abilities. That sounds pretty cool. Just hanging out and partying with your pals. I'm with it. The grass would wither and die from where their feet touched the ground during their dances, never to grow again. Well, well, I could use that, actually, if you teach me that dance. I have a, there's, there's a patch of weeds that grow in my backyard that I can't kill, no matter what I try to do. Every type of poison on it, they, it laughs at me. It's mocking me. It's mocking my entire existence. I need this witch's dance, so I'll do the Macarena out there. That's twice I've mentioned the Macarena in recent weeks. Hm. It remains unclear who those witches were or where they came from. Damn, so they can't share their knowledge. All right. The Chickasaw and the Choctaw Indians in the area immediately began to avoid the scorched patches of ground. Andrew Jackson traveled up and down the Natchez Trail frequently during the War of 1812 and the Creek War that followed. Although he did not seem to fear the spots, he recorded them in his journal because they were so interesting. Travelers and traders on the trace were not only perplexed by the barren spots of Earth, they had something more to fear. Infamous villains like Joseph Thomas Hare, Samuel Wolfman Mason, and especially the notorious Hart Brothers. Described as remorseless butchers and damned for eternity to wander, these criminals seemed to be driven by madness capable of killing on the slightest pretext. For instance, Big Harp killed Major John Love simply because he snored too loudly. He also killed his daughter, which I talked about before. They were not known to show mercy either, 
Women and children were among their victims who were often dismembered. Big Harp's men dismissed the guide's legend of the witch dance when they traveled along the Natchez Trace, opting instead to mockingly leap from spot to spot and tell the witches to come out and fight. Guys, it's never a good idea. I've said this before. It's never a good idea to taunt the monsters. And from the story before, we all know Big Harp's outcome. This legend goes a little differently. Someone seeked out Big Harp for revenge for his wife's murder, and they cut off his head and nailed it to a tree in retribution. Word spread rapidly about this gruesome event, and those who told the stories along the trace swore that they could hear cackles of laughter from nearby shrubbery and foliage. In spite of what we know now about legends and folklore, the scorched spots still remain, and nothing grows in their place. And many people still avoid the area of witch dance, with fear of being near the Indian mounds on the dark and dreary nights. We end our voyage through Mississippi's mythical folklore filled with a revived appreciation for its timeless tales. Mississippi's legacy has deeply impacted us, from the McRaven House's foreboding walls to the merriment and chants at the witches' dance, which in hindsight, the spooky workout is probably a tad too much cardio for this guy. But in all seriousness, it's fascinating to see how these stories blend history and the supernatural. It's like the past never really leaves us, it just gets a little more translucent. So as we bid adieu to the tales that made my hair stand on end, let's remember that Mississippi's not just a state on the map. It's a place where the past and the spooky come together for a storytelling fiesta. Here's to hoping that our own stories never involve too many ghostly encounters. But if they do, well, at least we'll have a good yarn to spin around the campfire. Until then, may your nights be ghost-free, and your sense of humor be as strong as a witch's brew. Thanks for joining me today. And remember, keep those nightlights handy. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Hi, Christopher. This, this is Amy. I'm currently in Ohio, and I just want to tell you, love your podcast. Listen to it every week and look forward to new episodes all the time. Can't wait to see what states you do next. So keep up the good job, and I'll keep listening. Have a great day. Bye. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. Every town has its dark history. Hometown Ghost Stories is a paranormal podcast that goes town to town all across the globe, exploring the world's most haunted places, tapping into the dusty archives and the darkest corners to bring you the most terrifying stories of real people and their harrowing experiences. Hometown Ghost Stories dives into the history of haunted locations and investigates why and how these places earned their terrifying reputation. Rob, Dave, and Jesse go live every Tuesday night after an uninterrupted documentary-style breakdown on the case, followed by an open discussion with live viewers. 
Subscribe today to listen to Hometown Ghost Stories on your preferred podcast platform or watch the video version on YouTube and now Spotify. Head on over to the Bloody FM Podcast Network and check out Hometown Ghost Stories if you're brave enough. (laughs) 